News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are this morning keeping a close eye on the flooding situation. We know there's flood warnings issued for neighborhoods in Merritt, parts of Abbotsford, keeping a close eye on what's happening with the Nooksack River this morning. So again, just getting an update on all of that, and we'll have more throughout the show today. Just stay tuned. Right now, though, we're going to be talking about maple syrup. Yes, maple syrup. It's a symbol of Canada. Uh, We know we all love our maple syrup. Quebec produces 70% of the world's maple syrup. However, what happens if the weather conditions make for a tough season for harvesting the syrup? Well, we're going to find out about that. You may have seen the headline recently that they're tapping into the maple syrup reserves. What is going on? What are the maple syrup reserves? Joining us to talk about that right now is Helene Normandin, Communications Director for the Quebec Maple Syrup Producers. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to talk to you this morning. I had no idea that we have maple syrup strategic reserves. How was that developed? Yes, that was, uh, it, it is in, in place, uh, established in uh, 2000, uh, 2001. Uh, and it's a part uh, of an initiative by the Quebec maple syrup producers. There are 11,300 million. Producers in uh, of maple, Quebec in Quebec of maple syrup. Yeah, that's amazing. So, as you said, uh, annual production of maple syrup is highly dependent of weather conditions. When Mother Nature is generous, production can sometimes exceed demand, leaving the industry stuck with over. Conversely, if weather conditions are less than ideal, maple syrup farms are unable to supply all the maple syrup consumers want. So that's why Quebec maple syrup producers have set up a maple syrup reserve to make it easier to deal with the annual fluctuation uh, fluctuations in the weather. Right. Yeah. So was this year a tough year for the weather? Is that why the reserves are kind of being tapped into? Exactly, but it was not a, a, a terrible or it was in an average uh, this year. The, I mean, when uh, uh, the, uh, the global harvest was uh, 182 million pounds and Quebec produced 133 million pounds of this amount and it, it was less than the two last seasons, which were record. We we beat uh, records uh, in, two, in 2019 and 2020, and we and the, the increase more of that the the, the, the demand the over overall is increasing for about uh, 20 to 21 persons all over the the world because maple syrup is uh, exported in 60 count, countries. So uh, that's that's right. good news. Uh, it's it start to be uh, uh, appreciated all over the world, and the demand increases, and the, the the we need to produce more, and that's what we we will do in the next years. Because I can say to give you an idea that there are fifty million pounds uh, taps in Quebec right now, and we will add uh, seven million more taps 
just to be able to uh, to uh, to respond to right. this demand. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we all love our maple syrup, which does not surprise me. But uh, what is the perfect condition, Helene, for for tapping that maple syrup for getting the harvest? What kind of weather do you yeah. need? It's a perf. It's a very good question. We need as long as possible in spring time period where during the night it's freezing and during the day it's unfreezing. So as long as we have this weather, it's going to we will be able to produce maple syrup. And it's it's about during ten ten to twelve weeks. Uh, hmm, okay. This period of time, and what happened in this last spring is that uh, we uh, the weather changed very dramatically to become uh, hot. So uh, the, the weather become became hot suddenly, and it stopped the production of maple syrup. Ah. So that's what happened, and that's why we had an, a production in the average, and not as good as uh, the two last years. How uh, old does a tree have to be before you can start tapping it? 40 years. 40 years? Yeah, exactly. So uh, uh, a maple tree has to be uh, 40 years and it can, uh, a tree, that tree can live many, many years, but uh, it needs, it needs uh, to, to have 40. Yeah. So does that mean that the industry is constantly planting new trees? Well, that means that there are many trees, the maple trees in Quebec. So planting, yes, but we can, we still have some maple tree on taps that could be, to, could be tapped and uh, produce uh, to, to help and to, to, to give uh, maple syrup. So we have many trees uh, in Quebec. I find this fascinating. So Helene, then this is a growing industry. More people are going into it. There's more and more farms. Yes, yes, exactly. And we are all glad about it because some people are very interested to see how it's going on. And it's very, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an industry in, uh, in, in expanding. I've noticed as well that maple syrup is getting more um, unique, more specialized, different types of maple syrup. Well, I think more we know, we learn to know maple syrup. We develop our different experiences so we can use some type of maple syrup to cook. And we work with food ambassadors in different countries just to adapt the use of maple syrup to the, the culture. So it's not only for pancakes that we can, uh, <laughs> as we do in North America, but uh, we can use this. The maple sugar has another type of sugar to cook and to prepare recipes. And that's why we, uh, we try to develop uh, some, uh, some partnerships with the uh, food ambassadors all over the, the world. And that's a, the, a part of, of what makes uh, the success of maple syrup these years. Yeah. Oh boy, it sure is popular. I love it. Helene, thank you so much for joining us. That was a pleasure. Have Hope a good you, day. You'll have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's get right to it. We have Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun on the line with us this morning because we want to find out what's going on in that community today. Mayor Braun, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Good to be with you. What are things like out there this morning? 
Well, as of uh, 4 a.m., uh, Virode uh, w- uh, w- has been closed. There is about 8 to 10 inches uh, of uh, water that's uh, running uh, south to north into the prairie, and uh, it was probably 8 to 10 inches deep. So it, that probably was running all night. I'll get a briefing uh, in about 50 minutes. Uh, but uh, Huntington is dry um, so far. Uh, sandbags are there. Uh, the floodwaters from the Nooksack are just making their way into the city of Sumas, uh, southwest of Sumas. So uh, the fact that it's taken 19 hours for that water to get here is actually good news because it tells me there's not as much volume as we were expecting. Okay, because I know that last night it was a very concerning situation. Would you say you're a little bit more optimistic this morning? I'm quite a bit more optimistic. I mean, we're not out of the woods by a long shot, but uh, we were told that the water could probably be here based on what the Whatcom County people were doing in four to five, maybe six hours, which told me that there was a lot of water coming. The fact that it's taken 19 hours is actually very encouraging. And what kind of work has been done overnight, Mayor Braun? I know there's been a lot of sandbagging work. You had lots of volunteers out yesterday. Yes, the sandbagging uh, for Huntington is done uh, about a kilometer and a half from the U.S. Border, from the customs uh, heading east along Southern Railway uh, to protect uh, Huntington Village. So when the waters come, it'll be redirected to the or directed to the east and ba- and then into farmers' fields, and that's where it will flood. So uh, the dikes, uh, we were put, uh, EMBC authorized uh, an additional half meter uh, to raise our dikes from Barrowtown, uh, the pump station heading southwest for about six to seven kilometers. My understanding was that work would be done before morning, and uh, I'll, I'll be briefed when I go back down into the EOC center. Okay, so this is just like two, so far, two down, one more to go. Is that how you're feeling today? Yes, and uh, it was. it's always been the third one that concerned me the most because we can only take so much. So it would appear, I mean, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we can handle what's coming across the border, well, what's been coming across the border, and it will come in larger volumes uh, once it crosses Sumas uh, City, uh, just to the south of us. But uh, the next one, uh, yeah, we'll see, but it's going to... It's going to be fingers crossed. Okay, so when will the next update be coming from Abbotsford? I believe it's 2 p.m. unless uh, something has changed. Uh, but I haven't heard anything from our, our comms people. will be here probably in the next 50 minutes as well. Okay, so I understand as well there were some people who hadn't left their homes yesterday. Yes. Well, that's happened. There's, there's probably 50 farmers, uh, 40, 50 farmers roughly in Sumas Prairie. Um, they love their animals and uh, and want to protect their property. I totally get that. And, uh, you know, there's not much. What, what are you going to do? I understand that. Mayor Braun, thank you so much for your time this morning. Best of luck. Okay, thank you, Simi. All right, we're thinking of you. That's Henry Braun, Mayor of Abbotsford, working away out there, letting us know what's going on. So far, cautiously optimistic. That is good news. Hopefully it stays that way. We'll continue to have updates for you this morning. Now, another organization that is working flat out right now to help out people is the Red Cross. Uh, We know that they have been working really hard to deal with the situation. Joining us now is Alicia Dempsey, who's the Red Cross Head of Operations for the BC Flood Response. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Hi, thanks for having me. How has this operation been going? It's it's been busy. Yeah, yeah. We've uh, we've had uh, teams on the ground since the start. Um, you know, I think it was a bit unexpected to have flooding so soon after a pretty busy wildfire season. 
Um, but, uh, you know, such as the events of life that are unfolding these days. That certainly is the case. So what kind of donations are you getting and wh- what does that money go towards? Well, first I have to say the donations, the, the, the general public Canadians are just so generous. Um, we've raised <clears throat> excuse me, a little over $10 million um, to date. Uh, really happy to hear the announcement um, that came out um, by both federal and provincial governments. We'll be matching dollar for dollar. So that really will make the, the funds stretch over... <clears throat> over the long term. So um, we're, uh, we're so pleased um, to have that. We, uh, we've launched a couple of uh, different assistance programs. And so um, one of them is for individuals who have been evacuated or returning home. And they're eligible to um, receive up to $2,000 um, to support with those uh, costs. Okay. And so where can they access that information? What do they need to know? Yeah, for sure. So they can go online, uh, redcross.ca. Um, uh, they need to register with us. Um, and so once they register and authenticate, uh, and they uh, will be able to receive the funding, um, they can um, also call. Uh, we have a 1-800 line set up for people that uh, want to do it by phone. They can call 1-800-863-6582 uh, to register. Um, and, uh, and then they can also, if they don't have the ability to do phone or web, can actually um, go and see one of our uh, teams who are on the ground. We've got teams uh, in, uh, in the ground in Abbotsford, Kamloops, Couch and Valley, Merritt, Princeton. And in the coming days, we'll be operational in Kelowna, Chilliwack, and Salmon Arm. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, busy time for you then. So, Alicia, is that where the money is going then? So when people donate to the Red Cross, is it going for any goods or is it mainly going to make sure these families have the financial support that they need? Yeah, it, uh, this is just the first wave of support. So um, the financial, this financial support of $2,000 um, goes towards, um, that's where the financial donations go. Um, and then we work with communities to find out what their um, short and long-term recovery planning is. So um, we have conversations around what the needs are and uh, focus on supporting uh, individuals and households with, uh, with whatever that looks like. We also have teams on the ground. We're handing out cleanup kits right now at all those centers and uh, working with local authorities to ensure that they have kits positioned there um, as well so people can access those as they're returning home and have something to help, uh, help with the cleanup. Oh, that I can imagine is going to be huge. Alicia, each one of these events that you described, like even in BC, you've got wildfires, you've got floods. Is each one like a learning experience for the Red Cross too about, okay, this is what people need, this is what we're going to do next time? Um, yes and no. Each disaster event is different, obviously, and fires to floods. I mean, there's some of the same elements, but um, the needs sometimes vary. And so we do have, uh, you know, some basic supports that always, you know, when an event happens, people always need cash in hand when they're first evacuated out of their households. Um, but then, you know, we shift towards longer term supports. And so uh, depending on the impact of the program in the past, we've run things like support the small business program. Um, we've supported um, organizations like community organizations and non for profits with capacity building so that they also have the resources to support. And we've done things uh, like disaster risk reduction projects. Um, and so it just depends on, on what, uh, you know, it depends on the amount of funds we raise. Right. Um, but, and then it also depends on what the needs are in community. Um, and at the individual and household level to support with those recovery needs. Well, it sounds like uh, money that is donated from the public is going a long way now with these matching funds. So how, once again, how can people help? Where should we go? Yeah, for sure. You can go to the redcross.ca website. There's a a way you can donate online if that's easiest for you. You can also text um, BC floods 
30333, uh, and that uh, will go directly in. Um, uh, and uh, there is also a, a call center people can call in at. Um, but if you go to redcross.ca, all the information is there. I can see that right now, as a matter of fact. Very well done. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, you've seen the headlines by now. I'm sure you've talked about it. You've thought about it. It's another COVID variant, this one that has been named Omicron. Yes, it has well been identified by health officials in South Africa, but we now know it's it's everywhere. We had two official confirmed cases in Canada. They are in Ontario. Health officials there had a press conference early this morning, a little over an hour ago, saying they're not changing their recommendations and their health rules because of Omicron just yet. Let's talk about the BC situation. Joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me back. Are you a little surprised that we haven't gotten more information from uh, here in BC? I am a little bit. I was calling for such information uh, as far back as Saturday. It would have been reassuring to understand, uh, to confirm that we do or do not have cases and what we're doing here in British Columbia to understand how to deal with Omicron going forward. Hopefully this information will come from Dr. Henry and Minister Dix today. What is the benefit, do you think, of getting, even if they don't know anything yet or even if they're just working on it, but what is the benefit of just that early communication, do you think? We're all on the same team. We all have to deal with the COVID pandemic. Uncertainty is difficult to deal with. Knowledge is power. To really... uh, Tell us that, that they understand that we're concerned. Tell us that uh, what, what the issues are. Does this evade the vaccine? Is it more transmissible? Does it cause more severe disease? That they're aware, as all other experts seem to be, that these are the issues and what we're doing to understand it in Canada in general and in British Columbia in particular. And what do we know about this variant right now? Well, the one thing we do know is that it has taken over the pandemic in South Africa in a matter of two weeks. That speaks of increased transmissibility. So we'll know more about that, I think, over the coming several days. That's the first piece of information that will be confirmed one way or another. The other issue we're concerned about is whether it evades the vaccine because it has so many mutations or genetic changes in that surface protein called spike against which the antibodies are directed, those that we get from being vaccinated. So we'll know more about that probably within the next week or so. And whether or not it causes more severe disease, that's what we call a lagging indicator. That'll take several weeks. In the meantime, more vaccine, follow the rules is what we need to do. And and just uh, wait and and, uh, look at the new information that comes out uh, on an hourly basis sometimes. Yeah, it certainly does seem that way. Does it seem to you that the South African health officials have been very open? They have been very open, very transparent. They feel as if they're being punished for being so good at what they do, actually. And there there is some truth to that. There may be other variants out there that other parts of the world have been slower to inform us about. And I think that going forward, we're going to have to encourage transparency and not punish people for coming up with information that, uh, that is actually helpful to us all. The first reaction does seem to be, though, Dr. Conway, you know, shut it down, like doing the travel ban, putting that into place. I know some countries have done that. Is it not too late for that, though? Because it does feel like it is already detected everywhere. Well, we've allowed travel pretty broadly in the past several weeks. So 
So by the time we identified, it was probably already out. And we now know that to be the fact. In fact, I heard on your newscast as I was waiting to come on that they're investigating four more cases in Ontario. I did not know that until five minutes ago. So I think that these cases were all transmitted well before this weekend. And these travel bans slow things down. But what is going to help us more is vaccinate more, follow the rules. And as people move around, especially between countries, let us put in place general strategies, not country-specific strategies, general strategies to prevent transmission of the virus across borders or at least slow down the rate of transmission. Do you think we need to uh, speed up the rate at which we are administering those booster shots? Oh, quickly, quickly. I think it is likely that this virus, Omicron, evades the vaccine, not completely, but partially. And the reason I'm saying this is we're seeing uh, an increasing number of people who had COVID before and who are getting it again with Omicron. So that suggests that the immune response that they developed either from a vaccine or from previous infection, isn't protecting them quite as well against Omicron. The solution to that is more vaccine and probably boosters more quickly. Okay. Is, is the virus doing, and this is what you study, Dr. Conway, I know you're a specialist on this, but is the virus doing what research specialists like yourself expected it to do? Absolutely. And we think that the way these more complex variants develop is when someone who's immunocompromised gets infected, even if they're vaccinated, their immune response isn't quite as good. It allows the virus to replicate in the body more than it does in other people. It allows it the time to develop these mutations. And if the virus is transmitted onwards from that individual, this is now a mutated virus that then can enter the general population. So this is something we expect of viruses. The solution, I come back to it again and again, let's vaccinate more people more quickly. Right, because we're giving it the chance to do this if we're, you know, here we are in Canada talking about our third shots. There's so many countries in the world that haven't even had enough supply to do the first shot. Yeah, we need to focus on the rest of the world. The two things we can do is any excess supply that we have, ship it to where it's needed the most and invest time, money, logistics, helping all of these countries to develop the vaccine, to, to make the vaccine there and distribute it there. I think these are things we need to do more quickly. Okay, so if we get an update today, what do you need to hear? What, do you, what would you like to hear from BC health officials? Is Omicron here or not? How are we looking for it sort of more quickly than we may have looked uh, for other variants before? And let us understand uh, all of the information that's available internationally, distill it for a British Columbia audience and commit to doing so in a quick and transparent manner going forward. We're all on the same team. Please go out and get your children vaccinated, get yourself vaccinated. And remember, there are still rules in place. Good advice. Uh, have we slacked off, do you think, on the testing aspect of it? I kept hearing anecdotal stories about how we're not being as vigilant about that. Absolutely. We've not ever tested in British Columbia as much as in the rest of Canada. This is a time where, in particular, we need to test asymptomatic individuals. It is possible that a highly mutated virus causes less severe disease. That's sort of the trade-off. So we're going to need to test all of the transmission networks once we find cases, even individuals who are asymptomatic, to understand where Omicron is right now. Okay, so lots of work to come. All right, Dr. Conway, thank you.
Thanks again for having me. As always, Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre, talking about Omicron. And that's the COVID-19 variant that's making all the news right now. And the questions that, well, we all still have about, is it here in BC? Ontario saying this morning they've got the two confirmed cases. They're investigating four more, as you heard in the news. What about what is happening in this province? This is Mornings with Simi. Two storms down and one to go. And as we heard from Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun earlier, that's also the one that he's pretty worried about. He calls himself cautiously optimistic this morning. Let's find out more about the situation on the ground in that community. Joining us is our global news reporter, Emily Lazatin. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Good, thanks. Okay, where are you right now? So I'm in Huntington Village where, uh, you know, I heard the mayor speak with you for a few minutes there um, before I had to go run off and do a hit. And, yes, it's dry. I mean, there's there's rain coming down. But um, in terms of immediate flooding, I don't see any in front of me here. Uh, you know, there we know there's an evacuation order. Some people are staying behind. We are seeing residents who just had a quick chat with a few of them saying, you know, they don't there's an evacuation order, but uh, they don't feel the need to leave just yet. Fire officials were also just here about half an hour since half an hour ago, Simi, um, sort of inspecting the berm of the two foot sand wall that they built. And, you know, from what they've said, they said not too bad this morning. And they are they too, like the mayor, feeling uh, feeling a bit uh, optimistic ahead. We should say ahead of this third storm that we could possibly see overnight. Yeah, that seems like the one that's also making Mayor Braun a little nervous, too, because it feels like, and I'm sure you see the evidence of that there, Emily, that they've gone flat out, right, to try to build up the dike system to hold off these waters. Yeah, we've we've been talking throughout the last week and a half here. We've been to Claiborne Village. We've been to uh, parts of uh, other parts of Abbotsford. Now we're here in Huntington Village. They are going all out. We're talking fire, police, military personnel to really protect what they can. And, and really, I, there's nothing short of that. When the mayor says uh, the city is doing everything it can, it really does seem like they are. And they're not falling. It, it doesn't seem like they're falling short of that. People are hard at work. Uh, we did hear the mayor say in Huntington Village, though, uh, these berms were really these sandbags, were really just to reroute the water that at the end of the day, if there were to be another severe flooding event, these sandbags won't hold up. It's, it's really just to right. try and protect the immediate homes here in Huntington Village. Right okay. And what's the school situation like out there? So is, are, are kids still going to school? What's happening? I have not checked on that, Simi. I can get back to you, though. Okay. I just know it's been, it's been touch and go, I know, and hope. I think they canceled schools today, so everybody should just check, I think, their, their local school district to find out what the deal is. I think even in Abbotsford, they've moved some schools to virtual learning, but again, you got to check everything uh, online. So lots of volunteers I saw out there too. Emily, are there, are there people out and about there this morning? Not yet. There are people. Ch- there, you know what? There's a lot of there's a lot of residents who have either walked their way over to the border where we at, or have just taken a short drive because they really want to know what it's like. Uh, it's their community. Um, they're talking to officials here. There's fire. There's military personnel sort of just off to the road. I, I think they're just talking right now. They're regrouping, um, and they just want to have a seat for the for themselves the situation but you know the area where the water is uh, we should say it's trickling in right it, it's it's very slow uh it, it's not too far from us it's about a few hundred meters so where we are now there's no water trickling in but you walk a few hundred meters and 
it's right there. Right. It's very, very close. All right. Well, listen, best of luck out there this morning, Emily. All right. Talk soon. This is Mornings with Simi. It is very much a touch-and-go situation in the Fraser Valley this morning. Coming up, uh, just after the 7 o'clock news, we will uh, hopefully check in with Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun for the latest information. Plus, we'll go live to Abbotsford and our reporter Emily Lazatin, who's out there to let us know what is going on right now. And of course, for so many farmers, they're just, they're waiting. Waiting for the waters to recede so they can see what the damage is and then even maybe start to think about recovery. And we wanted to talk more about that this morning. Joining us now is Richard Bosma, dairy farmer from Abbotsford and director of the BC Agriculture Council. Richard, thank you for being here. And what's the situation at your farm now? Well, if the water came up a meter yesterday, then we're back almost to where we were, five feet of water. That's awful. And there has, been, has there been any improvement in two weeks? Have you been able to get in there and take a look around? Yes, we've been in there. Um, it turns out we're in the lowest part of the basin, along with several neighbors, and uh, that water is not going away uh, very quickly. And then, of course, with the last night's news, the, the mayor said the water had come up about uh, yesterday afternoon. He said 75 millimeters, so I'm thinking it's about another meter um, in total. Um, it'll be a while before we get back in there with one more storm coming. Oh boy! And now I understand, Richard, that you didn't you didn't lose any cows. That must have been quite an effort to get them out to somewhere safe. Yes, and uh, great credit goes to our neighbors and our dairy community. The there were lots of trucks, uh, pickup trucks pulling trailers, and uh, it was all organized by one guy. A lot of guys just said, "Tell me where to where to go," and uh, they grabbed. A trailer full of cows, and then uh, the next call was, "Where am I? Where am I dropping them off?" And uh, uh, it went very well. That was on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Tuesday night, they said the uh, pumps were going to fail, so we were very nervous because we still had a hundred uh, young animals left in the barn. The pumps did not fail at that point, so the next day we could only get in there with uh, a tractor pulling a trailer, right. and we were able to rescue the rest. Richard, in all the time that you have been a dairy farmer, did, did, was there ever any talk in the community about the flooding, like the potential for flooding situation or whether or not things needed to be done to prevent that? Well, I've lived there for a long time. Um, we did move at one point, but it was still in the same area. Every every spring, we would be watching the floodwaters. Um, the dikes were part of our life, uh, uh, as far as we knew, they were they were being maintained. Um, so yeah, we we live with you know always the threat of. Usually, it was spring. Right. What What do you need, Richard? What would help for you in the next weeks and months ahead? Well, uh, you know, I'll just speak for the dairy industry. So many herds owners open their doors and cattle from the flooded area are kind of uh, doubled up, not really doubled up. Uh, We really want to watch the, uh, not to get the barns overstocked, but many people opened their doors and said, you know, I can make room for cows. And those cows are at their farms now and and, uh, they're really dipping into their feed stocks. 
my cows are eating feed at another farm. We can't access our feed. Many of our round bales have floated away. Um, farm, and then it was already a year where feed was short. Um, so we're we're looking at uh, significantly large losses to uh, replace feed that uh, feed right. that's washed away. Like people's winter supply is is uh, greatly affected. Well, I, we're going to check back in with you then in the weeks ahead, uh, Richard, and talk about that recovery portion of this, hopefully, when the waters start to recede. But listen, thank you for your time this morning. You're welcome.